0: Here is the last speaker of the evening. I'm, I'm reminded of William Goldman's book, uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade, where he described the composer as being the last welder on the ship. Well, having listened to the bit of shipbuilding that went on this morning, I don't think the kind of solder has been invented yet that might weld this one together. So I'm looking forward to the chat afterwards. Um, perhaps I'm more like the, the teacher in the last class in school, who everybody's been out to lunch and uh, and they're now back in for the last class, and we had a teacher, remember we had a maths teacher called Willie Glasheen in Limerick, where I grew up, and uh, he, was, he was, it was totally reliable that you could actually distract him from maths if you asked him to tell about the bees, <laughs> so you know, he'd be about to go into some peer room or something and you'd say, ah, uh, Mr, Mr. Glasheen, uh, Kesht, and he'd say yes, uh, and you'd say, um, and the bees are mating, Do, you know, how exactly does that, that, was that guaranteed you 20 or 30 minutes after the bees. <laughs> So, does anyone want to know about bees? <laughs> exactly. um, I'm, I'm going to come at this from a, a completely different angle. I, I propose to deal with the topic not emphasizing the uh, technological or legal uh, questions that have already been so very well aired here today and, and will be ventilated uh, when we get to talk later but from the perspective of uh, an Irish composer who over a 30-year working life has seen many changes and who's been given the opportunity to observe how Irish music and a sense of Irish identity are so closely linked both at home and abroad. The proliferation of all music into a, a massive global pool since the arrival of the internet raises some urgent questions not only for the future of music but also for the effect that such proliferation has on a sense of national identity, both from an internal and external perspective. During the course of this talk, I will try to sketch what has occurred in the development of Irish popular music over a 50-year period, and how what has emerged might find a place in the babel-esque world of the internet that we've looked at this morning. If I may, I'll refer both to my own personal experience as well as to more generalised commentary. Uh, with regard to our international delegates here today, I re- realize that some of the references in this talk will have purely local Irish interest. However, as the internet has re- revolutionized the use of music here as much as everywhere else, similar effects upon local culture will have been felt in Paris, Budapest, uh, Oslo, Berlin, New Orleans, in fact everywhere. I realize this is a subject which is traditionally stimulates the minds of musicologists, uh, cultural historians and other members of academia. Irish music and its relationship to a cultural identity is not a topic often aired amongst musicians and performers. They're too busy creating the raw materials for future examination or as we call it, surviving. However, the position of music and the role it might play in helping us to arrive at a shared view of ourselves is a legitimate one for musicians to occasionally examine, if only to confirm to ourselves that the ground is endlessly shifting and never more so than today. As Alex Ross put it in his fine book, The Rest is Noise. Music may not be inviolable, but it is infinitely variable. Acquiring a new identity in the mind of every new listener, it is always in the world, neither guilty nor innocent, subject to the ever-changing human landscape in which it moves. This statement might give a musician a neat opportunity to sidestep any engagement with the kind of discourse surrounding identity. It does not, however, excuse us from having to exercise caution or at least consideration when dealing with the power and promiscuity of a form of expression that can cross national borders with supreme ease, lift the veil imposed by language, and open a Pandora's box of emotional responses that can often even silence the poet. I suppose what I'm really trying to do here is to give myself some Dutch courage before approaching a topic that hasn't really received all that much attention, even in academia. Harry White, when writing about Sean O'Reilly, now Sean O'Reilly, for those who, are, who don't live amongst us, is a, perhaps one of the most important figures in traditional Irish music uh, over the last century. And uh, he worked both w- with jazz, he worked with uh, uh, Western classical uh, music, he worked uh, with traditional Irish music. But his his extraordinary influence uh, is all pervasive, and he was a, a seminal figure in the in the development of uh, an interest in traditional Irish music in the middle of the last century. Unfortunately, he died early. Uh, Harry, when writing about Sean O'Reilly in his, bu- his book, the, uh, the Keeper's Recycle, refers en passant to Ireland's preponderantly linguistic sense of itself. In a recent Irish Times essay, After Ireland, Declan Kybert refers to the elements that might form a national culture, language, religion, and nationalism. The fascination with the written word has received an emphasis which might lead one to suspect that the Irish were a race of tone-deaf bookworms. Even our national poet, W.B. Yeats, allegedly could not literally tell one tune from another. And yet, running counter to this, there is an impression, at home and abroad, that Ireland is a musical nation. We do indeed believe that we were raised on songs and stories, as Pete St. John put it, There is a certain prideful acceptance among many Irish people uh, that we are children of a long and rich musical tradition that incorporates our songs, our dances, our laments and our melodic airs. The human voice, whether raised in song or recitation, is key to an understanding of our musical and our literary tradition. Nor was it always kept to ourselves. We have been happy to export that music wherever possible. Our emigrating Irish carried the spores of Irish traditional music throughout the world, and we have also had commercial success. And long before you, too, P. J. Matthews, in his essay on Thomas Moore, points out that in the figure of Thomas Moore, Ireland produced a writer whose mass-produced work achieved the pinnacle of popular success in the early part of the nineteenth century, and endured into the popular consciousness well into the twentieth century, making him a figure of some importance in any historical understanding of the dynamics of the culture industry from an Irish perspective. So it would seem that we're not completely mad when we see ourselves as a nation with a strong culture and affection for music. Where things get a bit murky though is when we start to use music with its undoubted potential to move hearts and minds in ways that are remote from its essential purity. The fact is that whatever the use of music has been put to over the century, it still remains apolitical, asexual, national a religious in fact a everything except a music so what can such a truculent non-cooperative unaligned, capricious uncontrollable brat of an art form tell a nation about itself (laughs) to say nothing of presenting a window through which the rest of the world might view us and now over the internet well there are those who might be tempted to answer nothing and leave it at that but before I join that blissful crew and for the purpose of at least keeping us here a little while longer and to uh, postpone the fight that's about to come I've I, I decided to look at my own experience as an Irishman and as a musician. I was born in Limerick in 1950, uh, right at the midpoint of the century that saw us move from a British colony to a nation state at the start of the century and onwards, albeit occasionally stuttering, to a confederation of European states by the new millennium. As we struggle with the meaning of all of this, our first impulse, understandably, was to assert our newly gained independence by placing a strong emphasis on those cultural idioms that distinguished us from other states, particularly from Britain. So our constitution gave pride of place to our language, our church, and the age of De Valera, our president, paid special attention to our Gaelic sports, our rural values, and anything else that wasn't British. In fact, as Declan Hybert remarked, De radio broadcast of 1943 extolling rural values takes on an insurrectionary, anti-colonial intensity. But why did most artists and journalists treat his ideas with such hostility? The exclusion of intellectuals under conditions of censorship from the National Project after the 1920s may be the real explanation. It was into this world of dark introspection that I arrived. The windows, unlike those of Peter the Great's Russia, had been firmly closed down and the blinds pulled. My father had a newspaper shop, and I grew up in a house where his side of the family was all Republican. My uncle had spent time in jail for his activities during the Blackened and Tans, while my mother's family were at best apolitical. In fact, her sisters were all christened Mabel Edith. Uh, Gladys and Florence, (laughs) (laughs) so partly names with strong Gaelic associations. However, that said, uh, there was a heady nationalist atmosphere about the place, and um, my father, uh, like many of his uh, Limerick City contemporaries, could not speak Irish, uh, but insisted that the name be prominently engraved over our shop front. At Easter time, the lily which celebrated the rising was sold from a box on the counter, and the United Irishman, Akshayri, Russ, and other Republican periodicals were always regularly available and on display. Our house rang out with music, my mother practicing her Chopin and my father playing tunes on his harmonica. We had a Philips radiogram, and it had, been linked, it had been linked by a wire into the kitchen, which means we could listen in two places simultaneously, look out at the internet. <laughs> <laughs> One of my earliest musical memories was the air of the minstrel boy. At that time, I'm certain I did not know the words beyond the first two, two lines, but there was something about the melody that caused a bittersweet tremor within me. Thomas Moore had a gift for choosing beautiful melodies upon which to hang the poetry of his lyrics. In 1856, he wrote, I now take leave of the Irish melodies, the only work of my pen, as I very sincerely believe, whose fame, thanks to the sweet music in which it is imbound. May boast a a chance of prolonging its existence to a day much beyond our own. I have since wondered what it was about those melodies that evoked a feeling that I could not verbalise. Moore was generous to acknowledge the sweet music as it it is moot to speculate if his poetry could ever have achieved such widespread fame without the input of his nameless collaborators. But what was so intoxicating about the structure of these tunes? We might be tempted to look at the allegedly tone-deaf Yeats, whose poetic vision spoke of the music of a lost kingdom. At the grey round of the hill, music of a lost kingdom runs and runs and is suddenly still. The winds out of Clare Galway carry it. Suddenly it is still. I have heard in the night air a wandering airy music. And moitered in that snare, a man is lost of a sudden in that sweet wandering snare. Perhaps the kind of emotional response we have to music like this has less to do with a sense of place and more to do with a longing for a spiritual homecoming. Isabel Fonseca in her remarkable, if somewhat uneven book about the gypsies, Bury Me Standing, describes the kind of emotion that runs through gypsy song. She says, nostalgia is the essence of gypsy song and seems always to have been. But nostalgia for what? Nostos is the Greek for a return home. The gypsies have no home, and perhaps uniquely among peoples, they have no dream of a homeland. Utopia, utopos, means no place. Nostalgia for utopia, a return home to no place. Perhaps it is the yearning itself that is celebrated. This strong sense of yearning is is certainly one of the words that comes to mind when I try to verbalize my emotional response to certain kinds of music. But language never seems enough. As T.S. Eliot, uh, in a poem given to me by Professor O'Sullivan, um, says, words strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision, will not stay in place, will not stay still. There it is again, stillness, a wandering stillness, the melody of the minstrel boy. The Adagio by Samuel Barber, Charles Villiers' Stanford's The Bluebird, Brian Wilson's Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder, sung by Anne-Sophie, Von mm. Reich's Music for 80 Musicians, all reaching achingly for that stillness. Yeats might not have been able to recognize the tune, but he could hear the air. Let's leave for the moment this somewhat ethereal consideration and come to the more vexed question of what is Irish? about any or other piece of music. To return to my youth in Limerick, I was certainly aware from an early age that there was a body of music that was particularly our own. Songs about the poetry <coughs> beautiful scenic locations, um, emigration, the West Clare Railway, Slattery's Mounted Foot, The Rising of the Moon, Roddy McCorley, A Nation Once Again, all were woven into the medley of my childhood. They gave me the sense that i lived in a country where, despite our rather regular connections with defeat, <laughs> we were a noble and spirited people who were not to be put down and for whom self-sacrifice was seen almost as a privilege rather than a penance. When required, we could have a good-natured laugh at some of our rural eccentricities, often aided by the lyrics of Percy French, his toot on the flute and his twiddle on the fiddle-o were m- nudging wings at a form of music and dance which resided largely in rural Ireland. The sophisticated tastes of the city didn't run to this kind of music, and it was left to the recently formed Coltus ciotori Erin to protect and foster a tradition which had become seriously marginalized and in decline. As it turns out, this valuable repository of musical Irishness was referenced many times over the coming uh, decades, as we sought to find our cultural footing in the open seas of globalization, immigration, marketeering, and later on, the internet. It was common practice in the 1950s, and still is, for young children to be sent away to one of the gated Irish-speaking areas uh, to brush up on their native tongue for a few weeks in the summer. I have a strong memory at the age of 11 or 12 of being in a house in County Kerry, where one night after tea, the woman of the house gathered us in her big sitting room, The blinds were pulled down and on a big, somewhat porous sheet suspended over the bookshelves, the flickering images from George Morris's film Misha Era began to appear. Wide-eyed and in the dark we watched the images of a burning Dublin, of ambushes and gunfire, of riots and arrests, and heard a new kind of music. Sean O'Reilly's this orchestration of old Irish airs, presented a music that was familiar to us, but in a new and strongly affirmative way. It was big, it was symphonic, it had power. The fragile duckling of our independence had become a swan. To some eyes, looking at Ireland from outside, it must have seemed that we had turned some kind of corner. And were now happy to celebrate our native culture with the degree of brio and flair heretofore missing. However, this reclamation or elevation of the music of our tradition presented some problems, firstly for those Irish composers working in classical music and secondly, for those involved in playing trad music. The former's difficulty still remains as composers to negotiate a path between what is seen as Irish music and the developments of contemporary classical music elsewhere. There is no doubt that O'Reilly himself was acutely aware of this. Indeed, some of this struggle is very visible in his own compositional works, and undoubtedly took its toll upon him personally. Harry White, in a bleakly succinct summation of these composers of the composer's position, said again, The significance of O'Riada, then, is not that he was the greatest Irish composer of the 20th century, but that he silenced the claim of original art music as a tenable voice in the Irish cultural matrix. He silenced it, too, in its address upon the Irish mind. In its stead, he advanced the claim not of original composition, but of the ethnic repertory itself. O'Riada, for better or worse, was to determine the significance of music in Irish culture to a degree unprecedented in two centuries. The crisis enacted in his own life and works together with its resolution to find the terms and discourse in the 1970s and beyond. At the end of the day, though, I distrust most of the categories that music is habitually divided into, as much by commentators and analysts as by marketeers who slice it into target-sized chunks. I'm also convinced that some of the nationalistic pressure that was exerted in the middle part of the 20th century has dissipated considerably and I think that there is a greater sense of ease and comfort among the new breed of composers who can operate in several genres without feeling the tyranny of tradition or even notice the stop signs. While I perhaps disagree with Harry White about the weight he places on the the shoulders, I am with him when he points to the negative influence on creativity and innovation exerted by the preconceived notion of what amounts to Irishness. It serves neither music nor Irishness. In fact, any attempt to confine the course of music will always end up on the rocks. Schools, movements, genres are exen- essentially short-lived and ultimately conservative, which is contrary to the spirit of music. Like Groucho Marx, music is inclined to distrust any club that would have it as, as a member. Returning to my own journey, as, in, as the 1960s arrived, there began to appear some new voices which threatened to subvert the old certainties and challenge our sense of ourselves. Because of my father's voracious appetite for music of all kinds, I was introduced at an early age to jazz, and later to rock and roll. Albums by Glenn Miller, Theolonius Monk, Johnny Hodges, Bill Haley, Elvis Presley, all sat comfortably on our record shelves with the Clancy brothers, G. Renato Tobaldi, and Browns. But these were my parents' records. It wasn't until the eruption of the Beatles, I began to put my pocket money out for something that awoke a new kind of music within me and heard the age of the end, the end of the age of de Valera more effectively than any <coughs> political manifesto could ever have done. I still have a vivid memory of serving high mass uh, on Christmas morning in 1963. I got the album by the Beatles, uh, with the Beatles, and I could not get the, the, the tune of all my loving out of my head. Those guitar chords jangled around all through the consecration and communion. <laughs> <laughs> and I bounded home to the Philips gramophone straight after Mass, thirstily slavered on the Beatles for the rest of that Holy Day and for a long time afterwards. In fact, though I have many memories of music in my home and elsewhere from infancy, I can honestly say that from that first ignition with the Beatles, I have not had a day without music for the, for the rest of my life. The way in which music was put center stage by the youth culture, culture in the 1960s cont- contrasts sharply with how it is used today, I believe. In the 1960s, it was worn as a badge of youthful rebellion, while at the same time being a social glue that gave a great sense of cohesion to millions of young people in their teens and twenties. I can recall that by dint of being a member of a mail order club in the UK, I received my copy. Of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Land a, a week before the rest of my pals in Limerick. One of my best pals had a stereo record there, which was bigger than better than anyone else's. So for a period of the week his house became the listening center as gangs of us crowded into his living room and listened long into the night. We savored and analyzed each track and that final from Valhalla. And as I walked home each night, a couple of guys came with me, in case anyone had a notion to relieve me of my treasure. (laughs) Reflecting on this time in the context of our conference, it seemed to me that perhaps the principal difference between now and then can be summarized at least in three points. The use of music by the audience uh, was more often a community experience than it is today. Then we were huddled around record players, ear glued to the transistor radio, listening to pirate stations, or packed into small clubs or discos. Songs and recordings were analysed and discussed exhaustively. Today, music, as we said earlier, is more often experienced alone, insulated into a private world by our iPods and our MP3s, and consumed rather like food while on the go, or while jogging, or mowing the lawn. Secondly, in the heyday of pop music revolution in the 60s, we had to pay for the music. Hmm. Apart from the, the income that this generated for the artist, this also created a particular relationship between the musician and his or her audience. There was an implied acceptance of value between the parties. The artist gave the value of the entertainment, while the listener returned the compliment with a portion of their earnings. This allowed both parties to continue what they were doing. The musician was given the resource to make more music, and the listener could look forward to the next work with anticipation. I'd just like to deviate slightly for a minute, because in the context of the you know, looming argument, one of the things that I think we have lost in all of this discussion is those unique relationships between the composer and the audience, and the composer and the work. So there are relationships which are unique, I believe. And there are, there are, those are the relationships that should inform any attempts to grow new models. It seems to me that the the way the internet is being used today allows us, by dint of the fact that it's actually in its infancy really, it allows us to grow new models. And what we seem to have forgotten when we talk about advertisers and all these people around the the, the project, that the, the, the unique relationship is between the creator and the listener and the creator and the work. And those are what should inform any models that are grown from here on. Right up to the present day and you too and beyond, Irish international success in popular music and indeed in the other arts is now less a matter of national hysteria and more likely to invoke a quiet, affirmative, confident smile. However, there is an un- understandable impetus in the urges of many Irish creative minds to rummage in the rattle bag of our cultural past for charms and gems which we might shine up to illuminate the path forward. The link to a musical past, I suggest, is less about searching for a particularly Irish voice and more about placing our musical endeavors in a context that makes sense to us as Irish people. Speaking recently with Paul Brady, he suggested to me that we Irish, quote, having lost our spoken language, which some would say is the only true repository of the soul, our identity of a race, look to our ethnic musical heritage as the only remaining possession of racial characteristics that sets us, that sets us apart. He could not imagine, he said, a similar discussion about French music or Portuguese music and loss of identity. Loss of language, the argument of a nation, is indeed a deep cultural wound, but without our creative engagement with a foreign language, would we have had a choice? A Yeats, an Ocasey, a Freel, a Muldoon, a Beckett, a McCann, a Tobin, a, a Barry, or even a Brady himself. Harry White in one of his personal responses to me said, a distinctly Irish voice in music remains firmly connected to the traditional repertory, which has become the vital signature of Irishness in popular culture. The oral recognition of Irishness which reposes in the tradition has a very long history, but the global condition of this signature is for some a new tyranny, even if it is also, for others, a lucrative expression of an intensely commodified culture. I will explain what I mean uh, in a minute about... I'll come back to that mark in a moment but in the final part of today's essay which I intend to just tell you a little bit about my experiences uh, travelling with um, a show which uh, for the last 15 years has, has performed Irish music and dance around the world. Um, uh, I've, been, I've been granted, I a, a, a think, a singular perspective on the occasional insight about the condition of Irishness at home and abroad, but let me start at the beginning of an illustration of the well from which this work sprung. The first thing I would like to point out is that while I was asked by Moya Doherty on behalf of RTE to write the music for the Eurovision performance, that kicked off the whole thing. I had a complete freedom to write whatever I wished. So, and the importance of this will appear later, there was no commercial or corporate interference, no consultation with marketeers about branding, nor any meetings with board about selling Ireland abroad. In fact, the only engagement uh, and our, our, the only engagement with the corporate world was when I approached a, an, in, an insurance company of all people to give me the money to make the record nobody in the record industry was interested in a seven-minute single I, we couldn't put it out and I couldn't get any money so I approached church in general and I found myself in the odd situation of sending a cassette around to an insurance company to listen to <laughs> it and I'll never forget when they rang and said how much do you need and I said I need seven grand and he said oh actually I think it was 10 grand, I think I need 10 grand, and he said, right, he said, and what do you want, what can we get, and I said, what do you want, he said, well, can we put a little logo at the bottom of the single, and I said, yeah, (laughs) and he said, okay, well, then you got the money, so without that, we wouldn't have had a record, and without that, we wouldn't have been able to continue for quite a while, and that's what gave us the number one single, so it just shows, as was very eloquently displayed this morning, you cannot predict the future. (laughs) Anyway, the same, the freedom that I referred to there went on when we went on to develop the full-length show. Yes, some money had to be raised by investors at that stage, but essentially the elements of what the 2-hour show would be about were essentially decided by myself, Maya Doherty, and later John McAlvin. I deliberately wanted to involve non-Irish elements in the show, partly because I wanted to tell a specific story, a narrative. The story, scant as the narrative may be, Put Irish dance on the stage with flamenco, Russian balletic folk dance, and African American chat tap. I chose these forms because I had already worked with flamenco, Eastern European music, and jazz. It felt no less of a fit to me than Van Morrison singing rhythm and blues or John McCormack singing Italian opera. In the immediate aftermath, after the early performances of Riverdance, there was an extraordinary reaction at home and a very warm reception abroad, particularly amongst our European neighbours. We had just completed a twelve. We have just now completed a t- uh, ten-week tour of China, where it would appear that Roy Keane and Riverdance are what most Irish, uh, what most Chinese think of when Ireland is referred to. <laughs> um, he's kind of a dancer as well. Uh, um, when we were in Beijing, I received a phone call to come into the theatre one morning, and to my total surprise, I was greeted um, by an entire school of Chinese Irish dancers who had come to do a workshop uh, with our troupe of dancers and choreographers. They had learned all the routines from Riverdance and had asked for a master class with our lead dancers to sort out some of the more difficult steps. <laughs> the media in various territories catch you on from time to time. I remember being in Paris in the early days and I was brought into a room with a big bunch of French journalists. And there was a definite sense in the room that they wanted me to describe Riverdance to them as a bold declaration on the world stage that Ireland was culturally free from British domination. <laughs> <laughs> I always rely on the French. <laughs> uh, the English media had taken a somewhat uh, tabloid approach to the show, unfortunately, and we were forever fascinated by Michael Flatley's early departure and his personal lifestyle. I remember once being asked how many pairs of tights Riverdance used in a week. <laughs> I'm not sure what they thought the composer used to do for the show. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that question stopped me in the tracks. As equally did another question, when I was asked in Tokyo by a, a journalist uh, through an interpreter, what influence did I feel Oria the Sagaiety had on the current development of traditional Irish music? This was by a Japanese gentleman. So go figure, as they said. Um, What I've come to learn is that like many other forms of cultural expression, particularly the non-verbal ones, Riverdance was occasionally a blank canvas onto which people tried to paint whatever image of Ireland suited their own. A well-known Irish uh, film director said to me once, uh, expressed his curiosity to me me about the inclusion of African-American tappers in the show. He felt that the Irish at home and abroad did not have a good history of racial tolerance and suggested there was something dishonest about, as he saw it, pretending otherwise. Indeed, some wave was at this view when I discovered a wealthy Irishman in Miami had paid to have all the international elements edited out of the video, which he then showed to his friends and a big marquee on St. Patrick's Day, proudly pro- proclaiming his Irishness. However, we occupy an island today where communities of hundreds of Brazilians, hundreds of Brazilians now live in uh, Galway and Longford and West Common. I sat in a Korean restaurant here recently in Dublin. I was served by a beautiful young Asian girl called Alice, who spoke fluent Irish and French, and was educated by the nuns in Clontarf. <laughs> if you hail a cab in Galway, you're likely, you're, you're almost certain to be driven by a Nigerian or a Kenyan. A very capable, capable, capable African woman in uh, Ramstone, where I live, manages the Baron factory, and a local store just opened in Clifton, catering principally for Polish and R- Ukrainian community in Connemara. So an Irish dance show that incorporates non-Irish elements might seem to be less about the past and more about the present and the future. After the birth of Riverdance, the writer and and commentator Fintan Dallery predicted that a rash of similarly styled Irish dance shows shows would pour into the world. I must confess that I truly thought this was an outlandish prediction. I could not have been more wrong. Among the many bizarre items that I've since witnessed was a German-Austrian show called Night of Dance, Here the actual dancers came out, they played the track, music track of Riverdance, including the taps, and they mimed to the taps. (laughs) (laughs) And and they were just theater dancers, none of them were traditional dancers. A, a, um, and this was relevant to today, we couldn't stop them. The the German law could not support us, and they were allowed to continue. So people were going in, they saw Irish dance, when they were just listening to Irish dance and watching other people moving around. Um, There is no doubt that the branding of things Celtic became a real fad in the 1990s, particularly in North America. I would argue that the commodification of music was profoundly unauthentic, and indeed the term Celtic is often the subject of argument amongst historians and cultural commentators. The use of all these terms offered neither a window nor a mirror to any world apart from those tinky boutiques where you can buy luminous stones, dubious crystals and books about angels. All of these attempts to classify, stratify, cate- categorize, and define are profoundly anti-musical. And while they may help in the merchandising and monetizing, and target marketing and product placement, they will never have any part to play in that elusive locus where the real music making begins. It is worth noting here that the balance between commerce and art has always been difficult to achieve. Nowhere is this more evident than in popular music where the turbulent landscape is strewn with the casualties of that tension and mutual disrespect between the urge to create and the opportunity to profit from that creation. With her customary insouciance, music just leaves these battlefields and pitches her tent elsewhere, a plague on both their houses. Recently, a Farming in Dublin, an event took place at the initiative of the economist David McWilliams, A group of specially chosen high achievers were assembled to look at the way in which Ireland's wild geeks, or those who had emigrated, uh, and those successful Irish women living abroad could be engaged to stimulate things at home. Now while everyone seems to have been sworn to secrecy during that weekend, what appears to have emerged more than anything else so far is a consensus that culture has a major role to play in imagining an economic future for Ireland. This is encouraging news, if indeed it is news, for those uh, whose livelihood depend on the arts, and it is to be applauded. However, it must come with a strong health warning. Let me take it back to the Beatles, back to Joni Mitchell, back to Paul Simon, to Jimi Hendrix, to James Taylor, to The Grateful Dead, to Frank Safton and Frank Sinatra. All of these artists came through a time of considerable political and social upheaval. They also came through a time when the business of music was in its infancy and everyone was making it up as they went along. Many of the early record company men, this is really important, were drawn to selling music simply by a passion for the music itself, and a proselytizing desire to disseminate and nurture that music and give it to the world. Somehow, over the ensuing decades, those figures were replaced by men with proven track records at selling any commodities, no matter what they were. Now we are left with the grotesqueries of American Idol and X Factor where those who choose the artists are <coughs> continually celebrated while the artists themselves are disposed of to make way for next year's crop of hopefuls. To return family, to family, may I say this, I'm very proud as an Irishman when I see a pound of Kerrygold butter or Barry's tea or McCann's oatmeal on the shelves of a supermarket in Paris or New York. But I also recognise that the route taken to put that on the shelf is, very different, is a very different one from the path taken by Damien Dempsey or a Julie Feeney CD, or a book of poems by Bo um, or anything that has to come through the edge hard. It is important to make that distinction which is always understood when branding and image making are to the front of the discourse. As we saw from the recent McCarthy report, pure economics and the arts are uncomfortable bedfellows. In difficult economic times it is tempting for the institutions of state to look to the artistic community in endeavour to, to present an attractive brand image to the world. However, if any such active engagement is a good idea at all, it should only proceed when mediated through sensitive channels and when many of the conventional principles of marketing and promotion have been put on hold. The arts are by nature untidy and often messy, and like ourselves, the men of business may be forced to rummage and rattle about to find new paradigms, models as they go forward. In conclusion, I am grateful to the CMC uh, for the opportunity to come and speak here today. I spoke from the heart about music making because I think that's what the engine of all considerations about the future of copyright really should be about. It's not about existing models, it's not about advertisers, it's not about anything like that. It's about what causes people to get up in the morning and sit down at the piano or a guitar and sing or make a song. That is what the engine should be. And all of the other things should then fall into line behind that. This today has given me an opportunity to interrogate myself in the delicate question of cultural identity in the global world. Paddy Cavanagh spoke of the distinction between the provincial and the parochial. Joyce's record of one day in Dublin was parochial in its observation, but universal in its reach. We have no problem, therefore, in seeing Ulysses as Irish and a global piece of art. At the end of the day, though, whatever the consideration of national identity, of global reach, uh, as a writer and composer, one is essentially alone. I've written most of my work in an attic in a small room where one is forced to look inward in order to see outwards. Somewhere in there, I I connect with that energy that stirred when I heard the minstrel boy, to that energy which pulled the Beatles' chords onto the high altar when I served mass, to listen to the silence in order to hear the music of the lost kingdom to be still in order to move. T.S. Eliot said it well. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor toward, at the still point, there the dance is. Thank you.